everyone, Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. This is the last episode where Matt Valor and I discuss Bernard Stiegler's Technics and Time. Uh, a really interesting book that we finally finished up, I'm glad to say. By the way, I found a really good PDF online, and I'll, I'll drop that link in the notes in case anyone wants to have a look. Uh, and yeah, Matt and I have talked about possibly keeping this going with another text. I think we're looking at a shorter book right now called Quantum Anthropologies uh, by Vicki Kirby. I'm already about halfway through it and really enjoying it, so more to come on that. This month, uh, next week in fact, uh, our scholars seminar will be led by Clayton Crockett. The readings for that are available over on Patreon, uh, including some advanced proofs of Clayton's forthcoming book, Energy and Change. So I'm really excited to have a look at that. You might recall a couple months ago, we had to reschedule Thea Cooper. She's now going to be with us in August to talk about the indecent theology of Marcella Althus Reed. Uh, Just a heads up, we're gonna be taking a break during the latter part of the year, probably changing the format up a bit. We'll let you know about those changes as we go. Go to patreon.com slash radical theology to sign up and join the conversation. One other announcement uh, in October, our friend Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity is putting on a three day event in North Carolina called Theology Beer Camp, uh, which is probably what you're thinking it is. It brings together a bunch of podcasters, scholars, and theology nerds to hang out, enjoy craft beer. Uh, there may be other chemicals introduced into the system, if that's your thing. Uh, we're going to do some live podcasts, uh, play some some dumb games, and just, you know, have a good time. Uh, Justin and I are going to be there, hanging out, recording some audio, and there's going to be a bunch of other podcasters there as well, a whole bunch of cool speakers, and uh, you are officially invited. Uh, the cost is $200. But when you use the discount code WARMACHINE, you'll get $50 off. And the way that it's supposed to work is that Justin and I would get that 50 bucks, but what we're going to do is just hand it right back to you. So really, it's a cool event for only 100 bucks. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to www.theologybeer.camp. You'll see all the info, the schedule, speakers, and so on. Um, We'll drop the link in the show notes, or just send me a message if you want to learn more. Okay, without further delay, here is me and Matt Valor discussing the last chapter of Stiegler's Technics and Time, uh, which is called The Disengagement of the What. Peace. How you doing? Doing okay. Um, yeah, been a slow, slow morning. Uh, intentionally, so I left it pretty open so I could try to read the rest of this uh, Stegler stuff. All right. Yeah. Nice. It was. It was horrible. <laughs> it's brutal, isn't it? It's brutal. <laughs> it's so hot here. I, I mean. Summer has really hit, and it's just glorious. It's absolutely amazing, but it, to the point where you just—I just need to hide from the sun. Yeah, what's the what's the temp over there in in Fahrenheit? If you can do that, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't do that. We okay. I only do Celsius. We, we're pushing thirty, which is not that high, but it just when you're in the sun, it's just so hot. Yeah. Well, I just got back from uh, Savannah, Georgia, and that shit was hot yeah that's it that's why i shouldn't say it really because we don't really get anything like that no but it's i mean listen yes it's all i suppose it's all relative but when you walk out the door nine o'clock in the morning as i did it assaults you and you can hear the cicadas just like mocking you (laughs) (laughs) you can hear them they're like hell is coming hell is coming (laughs) that's funny (laughs) um but it was nice i I hadn't been down there in many years and didn't remember a lot about it, but a lot of the architecture is really interesting. Some of the history of that, of that city is, is fascinating as well. Um, we did like a 
a ghost tour. We didn't see any ghosts. This, this is what I thought. I thought it was going to be like, we're going to visit some haunted places, but it was more like we drove past some haunted places and they would tell us about the history of it and mixed in a good bit of historical stuff as well. So it, it was okay. I just, I didn't see a ghost and I was sad. Yeah. No, that is a letdown. I agree. Well, anyway. So I don't know where to begin with, Steve. That's always the case, isn't it? Not sure mm. where, to, where to begin. Uh, <laughs> I feel though that because uh, we've had a few messages back and forth and it feels like some of the other chapters have been tricky, but this one has been particularly brutal. Is that how you feel? Definitely. Yeah, this has been progressively challenging ever since we got to the um, the chapter about uh, Epimethea. From that point, it's been progressively more dense, more difficult to read. I don't want to say more philosophically robust. I'm not sure because I, I don't know that I'm in a position to evaluate that, frankly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel you. <laughs> what I have found with this final chapter is it's pushed me to try and sort of scrabbling around for scraps from the table kind of way, yeah. try and understand some Heideggerian concepts better. Oh. And I found that useful. So I read the whole thing and I was like, ah, what? (laughs) And then I've gone away and done some of that. And that, so that has helped. So that might be something worth talking through because I feel like we just need some anchor points, don't we, to try and figure out what we're even talking about here. Yeah, I think the Heideggerian piece, sort of filling that out to whatever extent um, you're able to, that that would be fantastic. Um, You know, my familiarity with, with Heidegger is, mainly passing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I di- I think I did okay in the first, I would say third of this uh, section of this chapter. I felt like I was really picking up steam and starting to like really understand some of the key concepts he had built up in, in previous sections. And then it seemed to me, he took this sort of unexpected turn, uh, diving into Husserl. And yeah. I was sort of following along with that too. I'm like, now he's just kind of enriching this story he's telling through this sort of uh, semiotic register or so on. And I was like, okay, this is really interesting. Then it just completely went off the rails for me. And the last 10 pages of the book or so, I did not know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> so that's my story. Yeah. Yeah. I had a really different experience. I right. could not get my head around the first third of this final chapter. Um, And then when I got into the middle of it, I was like, oh, okay, I'm getting back into this. Uh, But then, yeah, I did also struggle a little bit with the end. All right, well, maybe Um, we can help each other out then. Yeah, that's what I wondered. (laughs) All right, let's start here. I'm going to refer back to the message I sent you the other day when I was on a very hot Savannah beach and I was very much inebriated. Um, where is it? I read it this morning. I was like, oh, that, that made sense. <laughs> yeah, I thought, it, I thought for being, I mean, you said somewhat inebriated and I interpreted that as, <laughs> yeah, well, it did a, make sense. It's a good qualifier because it allows, it allows for a lot of interpretation. Um, <laughs> exactly. Wait, you're saying for Stiegler time is phenomenological, but on the basis of epiphylogenetics. So it is processed, but it constructs the past as well as the future on the already there. And I think that's right. And so I said, I think this might actually get to the heart of what I'm reading, where Stiegler talks about how the ontological question runs through the question of the who and the what. In the sense, it is that question, right? It's a question of the empirical and the transcendental interrogated so as to collapse that very distinction. I think that was one of the things in the early section that came through strongly for me. And this could be just a misinterpretation on my part, but the concept of epiphylogenesis, I think really sort of came together at the end for me with this question, the ontological question of the who and the what. And I guess I just like understood it more etymologically instead of it's just being an epigenetic relation between species or between living matter, there's a genetic relationship between man and his tools. Yeah. It crosses living and non-living matter. And this is a not just a process that he wants to describe on its own as apart from a process that would have been prior to it. What I sort of understood is that this epiphylogenesis 
is continuous. On one hand, there's a there's certainly a break of a before and after. People try to pin down by way of an by way of an origin. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I, so by the way, one one other thing, I was I got very high yesterday morning accidentally. I just kind of overdid it a bit. And for a while, I thought I understood this book completely. <laughs> <laughs> to, the point, to, to the point where I was thinking about repeating and just, just to see what would happen. <laughs> and well, see what, in this conversation, you mean? Yeah, yeah. So suddenly you'd be the perfect in, in, <laughs> interpreter. That's brilliant. No, I mean, I think what you said there was good. Uh, there was a few things in what you said that I think are worth just noting as ways of structuring what's going on with this chapter. So one is that Stiegler is framing the discussion in interrogating the relationship between the who and the what. That's one thing. He's then also doing that as a way to interrogate the idea of the already there. So if our knowledge and and, and everything comes down to us through tradition, that's one way of thinking of the already there, but he wants to say, but what about the kind of stuff, the physical tools and objects that construct that tradition? Uh-huh. So, so you, you sent that message to me and it was actually really helpful because I had not really properly clocked the ontological question about the who and the what. I just, I don't know if my head just wasn't in the right place when I read it, but I just hadn't clocked it properly. But I agree when I went back to reread it, I think that is the fundamental question of the chapter that he sets up for the discussion. So that is something that is crucial to Heidegger because Heidegger makes this fundamental distinction between the ontic and the ontological. And his claim is that the history of philosophy has not dealt with fundamental ontology. It's just been dealing with ontics. So the ontic is the being of this book or this laptop or this human animal or, or whatever. Yeah, it's being lowercase b, right? Right, yeah. Whereas fundamental ontology is about what it means to be. And so that's his exploration. And in terms of the human, it becomes the, the Dasein. So I think what Stiegler is saying, this is when I went back and reread the opening pages of the chapter, I think what Stiegler is saying is Heidegger makes that distinction that the, the who, Dasein, is separate from the what, and that the what is divided into the present at hand and the ready to hand. So I checked that out a bit more as well. And my, my understanding of that is that Heidegger makes that distinction between, you know, the ready to hand, here's this glass, it's got some water in, I can pick it up and drink it. And so I see the glass as a tool. I'm not sort of contemplating it or its properties or its being or anything like that. I'm just picking it up to drink from it because it's ready to hand. Whereas it becomes present at hand if I start contemplating it, but Heidegger's project is to break down the idea of presence and to say that being because this is what we talked about last week like being is never fully present because in order for me to be i have to always exceed myself the moment i stop exceeding myself i'm dead there's no more excess um so there's no there's no structure of presence to the object the object is in fact ready to hand it's the what um and You there? I think facticity is the right Heideggerian word. It doesn't hold up to the facticity that my already there is constituted by a whole series of what's. Uh-huh. Um, so I think I'm just saying back to you what you already said, but I'm trying to uh, get clarity on the Stiegler's use of Heidegger's language there. Um, and then I think just on the epiphylogenesis, because I was also trying to really get my head around that more, because it keeps it's come back all the way through. So phylogenesis is a term for the genesis of a species rather than a single organism. And epigenesis is the term for the external 
cultural forces that shape the genetics of a particular organism, like the external environmental conditions that shape the development. So I think when he's bringing those together, what he's saying is we need to think about the external conditions, the environmental conditions that shape the development of the whole species. Uh, and that, so epiphylogenesis is techniques because it's only on the basis of the use of tools and so on that actually we have this genetic development. But I think you're totally right to hone in on the genetic quality of it, that it's it's not like tools are there and they gave, and they give us a background. It's, it's back to this question we've repeated several times, which is that we are constituted by that technicity. There's a circularity here as well, which makes it, I think, really difficult to talk about, especially when you introduce all this extra technical language. I think one of the first images that he uses that really helped me think about that was uh, a musical instrument. For some reason, I have a picture of Squidward in my head and his clarinet, and he's telling us about Heidegger. What the fuck is it? I'm sorry. There's something you'd like to add while I'm <laughs> you're looking. Yeah. looking for this. I suppose one other thing I was going to add was uh, that he references again at the beginning Mino, as in Mino's paradox. So this is uh, from Plato, I think, where the, the paradox that Socrates tries to refute is the question that Stiegler introduced right at the beginning of the book, which is how can you define something if you don't know the identity of the thing that you're defining? Right. This is part of how he introduces this chapter by returning to that. Uh, and so he's saying it's um, it's a theme that is common to Mino and Epimetheus and Dasein is that a form of knowing is originarily forgetting. And so we, we come back to that question of the kind of originally forgetting. I think the reason he's trying to bring all those three figures together, Mino, Epimetheus and Dasein, is that this idea of the originally originally forgetting is kind of like it's he's he's talked about Epimetheus as a way of originally forgetting. So it's a full Epimetheus forgot, but we then forget that we are prosthetically constituted by uh, techne. Right, um, and, we, and we continuously repeat this. I guess we could call it a, a, a cycle. We just con- yeah. continually participate in this forgetting. Absolutely. But then also, it, when you bring Mino into the equation, it's not just a forgetting of a kind of human origin or a forgetting of uh, prostaticity. It's a forgetting that is part of the question of how would you even define what it means to be which is a major part of Heidegger's project. So what does it mean to be a who? Well, part of the forgetting of being able to define what it means to be a who is, in fact, the forgetting that we are also a what, and we're part of an epiphylogenetic evolution of a system of what's or of whatness or something that, that kind of constitutes our right. being. And for Heidegger, who wants to, I think Stiegler would say, wants to place or is invested in placing emphasis on Dasein as a sort of a finality of this process or a sort of culmination. I think what Stiegler wants to do is to sort of not necessarily say that that's incorrect, but that Heidegger participates in this kind of forgetfulness in his very need to have his philosophy center on Dasein. There's an anthropocentrism to yeah. Heidegger's work that I think Stiegler wants to say, no, the Dasein is constituted by the what. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good, Matt, because I think it's good to identify that clearly that issue of anthropocentrism. Mm. Because I, th- I think that was introduced early on, and then we were struggling with it a bit, weren't we? Because it was like he was, Stiegler was trying to blur the boundaries between the, the sort of zoological generally, wasn't he? And then it was like we kind of left that and we were saying, well, hang on, he seems to have come back very strongly to the human again. But I think in the final chapter, it, it's more interesting because it's almost, um, there was a quote again, I don't, I don't know how quickly I could be able to find this, but it was something about the kind of, we, we would then have to reckon with that 
the ready to hand the objects of the world that we inhabit also have their own i can't remember the word he used it's not hoonness but something that has its own kind of um life almost because but, but it's not that the, it's not that this glass has life it's a, the i think it's technicity it, it's caught up in something yeah i think that might be right and i think that if, if this was to be rendered in a sort of like process more process ontology technicity would be doing a lot of the work there yeah I've got it. It's the maiotic. I, I wasn't familiar with this word, mm-hmm. but I th- so um, M A I E. I had to look that one up too. Yeah, yeah. So it's page two four four. So the quote is: In Heidegger, the what has no other dynamic than that of an inversion of the quotes authentic dynamic of the who. So, in other words, uh, the who that sign pursues authenticity for Heidegger, which is the opposite of just um, being sort of there as a what. It's the kind of coming into being of an uh, an individual. But then, carries on Stiegler, does not the dynamic of the who, on the contrary, vouch for a maiotic of the what? And so maiotic is a kind of word for like coming into consciousness. Uh, and so I think the argument there is that if we've probed the dynamic of the who, as we have with Stiegler, which requires the what for it to happen, and it requires that kind of epimethean prosthetic,ity double fault thing, yeah. uh, then uh, actually we can give more. I don't know if consciousness is is quite the word, but there's a sort of coming into something like that of the what, which yeah. which means that then you can't make this big distinction between the who and the what in the in the way that Heidegger wants to. Yes, and I and I think this a little bit on the following page. Not only does Heidegger think the instrument, he thinks on the basis of it. That's kind of what you were just saying, as I as yeah. I understand it, right? He's thinking the truly ontological question, but what Stiegler is saying, and to kind of invoke process once again, he does not think it fully through, or maybe another way of saying that is he doesn't think through the instrument, right? As yeah. a as a who passing through the what to the who again, yeah. right? In this sort of epimethean, promethean. Again, I keep returning to this word cycle and it's, it doesn't appear in his text. I just can't help but do a, a little bit of a process reading of this um, because he's talking about at another point, he's just talking about time as such and talking about how he wants to, um, along with others, push back against the idea that that time is a succession of nows. So if you have like a little line with little kind of hash marks along the way, that would be the way that we normally think of time, right? As a sort of succession of perhaps that's infinitely divisible. I don't know. I think the yeah, that's the calendar uh, and the clock. Yes, and so what I think is in the background of this. Maybe it's not in the background. Maybe he's just kind of using a different language than is uh, amenable for me. <laughs> is this is a reworking of a metaphysics of time that is considered through. Technics. I mean, that's where he started with this whole project, right? He wants to conjugate time and techniques. And I think one of the results of that is that we have to reconceive not only being, but we have to reconceive time. And I think that's what I'm being drawn into doing a little bit. And I, I'm not sure how exactly to do that, but I think it's important. This is getting a little bit off topic. I don't want to get too off topic. No, I, um, I think it's fundamental. I, I really agree. Uh, so one of the other things that I came to in exploring Heidegger some more is just a bit more clarity about the nature of Heidegger's project on time, because that is essentially trying to disrupt the linear notion of time, as you described it, um, with a much more, um, again, I may, may not get the language precise, but there is a now, there is a future, uh, or there is a potential or possibility, I think is the word, but it is indeterminate. The only bit that is determinate is my death, but the nature of my death is indeterminate. So the possibility is indeterminate. And then there's this sort of 
traditional there's past but it's it comes as something that is um i think stiegler quotes heidegger on this that the past is uh, let me see if i can find it because i highlighted yeah. that as well yeah here we go so so in in its fact this is heidegger in its factical being any dasein is as it already was and it is what it already was it is its past whether explicitly or not Dasein has grown up both into and in a traditional way of interpreting itself. In terms of this, it understands itself proximally and within a certain range constantly. I understood that to mean it understands itself to be in a space. Culturally constituted, yeah, yeah, contextualized, yeah. Yeah, and that's how there's a kind of stability of identity. Okay, I change over time, but there's a kind of consistency to me um so it continues uh, by this understanding the possibilities of its being are disclosed and regulated its own past and this always means the past of its generation is not something which in italics follows along after that sign but something which already goes ahead of it and Stiegler goes on to say this is one of the most important passages of being in time. So I, I think it's the idea that the past is ahead um, and that that is what is meant by the already there. It's that the past is laid out in front um, as something that determines, um, uh, determines may not be the right word because the what? possibility is indeterminate, but it creates the conditions for which the future is, is possible. And so in that sense, right. it's in front. Right, it goes before. Yeah. And this is how Heidegger rethinks time, uh, is how I came away to understand that. Yes, and that's why I had an, a new image of time occur to me while I was reading this. Like, to be completely honest, this is something that's been a question I've been thinking about for years now. He touches on this briefly. He says, contra Plato, where there's some sort of timeless realm of forms or something like this. He says the alternative is to try to actually think time in its imminent becoming. Yeah, and I think specifically was how I understood that. You know, rather than sort of just trying to abstract everything, like time is constituted by a whole series. The series is an awkward word because that implies a series of nows, but like it's there have been um, things that have been done, technicities, prostheticities that have been employed. These are what have constituted our time. So there is a material history to the nature of the time that we have. Yes. Rather than that material history just happened in time, that material history, that those spatial reconfigurings or whatever actually made time. Yeah, and one other thing that kind of figured into that part of the discussion, as I recall, was the question of design as one capital O. And I wasn't 100% sure what he was getting at. I think what he's saying is that there's a certain sense in which a, a consideration of design as egotistically based or egoistically based, according to his model, is wrong, right? The whole concept of idiocy. Yes, there's a phenomenological viability to it, but as read within this larger philosophical framework, design is one. Dasein is what comes before. And that, I think, gets to something that I um, mentioned in our last conversation about a, a cyborg Dasein. And that, mm. in reading this chapter, I think there's some merit to that kind of phraseology and that concept to think about this project in its totality, which I don't think I've yet done. But the closer I get to it, the more sort of disarming it becomes. I feel like there is a certain mysticism lurking in the background of something like this, <laughs> but I could be wrong about that. Maybe that's a question we should come back to because that feels like a concluding question to me. Yeah, fair. Because yeah, I think there are lots of, I, I think there are resonances to pick up around the wider conversations that you and I have had around new materialism and, and so on, um, which is sort of, not a conversation that Stiegler is in at the time that he writes this. So it's... Um, right. I know. I have a hard time staying focused 
Uh, yeah, no, no, but I think it's a good question. I mean, it's how, how do we, you know, to, to what extent do we read, and, and how do we read this with somebody like Haraway? Uh, um, so I think those are good questions. Well, maybe a point of connection to kind of draw it back into this text as such is memory, because he spends a lot of time talking about memory and, and Husserl and primary memory, secondary memory, tertiary memory. Um, that felt important for what he's doing here. He starts talking about memory and the importance of what he's calling retention. And this relates, I think, to the concept of time and especially of now considered either metaphysically or phenomenologically, take your pick here, right? And I, I thought this idea of retention was really interesting when he's talking about um, melody, right? Mm. And that how the experience, the experience of hearing a melody is on one hand, you have a retention of what came before, which informs the actual sense data of what you're experiencing now as situated within that retention. And then also there's a, an anticipatory dimension as well. But it, retention, I don't understand it to be memory. It's more like a trace of what has come before. Nosrol represents this as a comet's tail. And I thought that image was was really interesting. Yeah, so there's a discussion about retention and representation. So Stigler is saying that retention is not representation because retention and secondary memory shouldn't be confused. And then there was tertiary memory. And I think I was struggling with the distinction between all those. So there was perception is primary memory. I think he wants to part ways again here with Heidegger in the sense that Heidegger wants to base his ontological divisions. Oh, fuck. I don't even know. Maybe we should just fucking get somebody who knows this shit to tell us what it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're going somewhere there because I, we, I think we can at least sketch something, even if we're struggling with the specifics. There's a distinction between the ready to hand and present at hand. And this is a distinction within Heidegger. And then Heidegger critiques Husserl's phenomenology. So that is also a crucial part of his project. But Husserl was his mentor, I think. And what I can't remember in a way that I could articulate it clearly is the nature of that critique. Um, but I think that's what Stiegler is referring to in this next section, because he's then he's wanting to clarify how Husserl is talking about memory, because as you rightly say, memory is crucial to this entire project of Stiegler's. Um, and then what I have got here is, is, so this is page 248, where he's saying it's easy to see in what Heidegger's critique of Husserl ought to consist. You know, what he should have said was uh, that historical conception of temporality such as it constitutes the who, would demand that the already there is not lived, but inherited, constituted outside any perception, is nevertheless constitutive of presence as such. Uh, and this is why temporality cannot be conceived in terms of the now. And so I think he's trying to pick up the same, you know, the same thread is there that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the context for the argument is still there, that the what constitutes the who, um, but he's turning that onto the question of phenomenology because it's not just that the already there is something that we live and we sort of experience in the moment, but we, we inherit it and it's the inheritance of it that is so vital to Stiegler's I think Stiegler's main argument, which is that I don't just know how to live or, or what I should, inverted commas, do um, you know, because my parents told me or because I went to church as a kid or because I went to school and I got told it there or because the government have laws and whatever. I know it because of a, a more fundamental system of being than that, which is the memory the epiphylogenetic memory that is prosthetic. Um, and therefore that would 
that would imply a critique of memory from a phenomenological point of view. Because if if you if we're just thinking about memory as something phenomenological, as something that's constructed in our minds as a result of, of, of our perception, and you know, my parent sings me a tune as I go to sleep, and I'm you know remember it and sing it to my own kids. It's memory is not limited to to that, but there's something much more technically fundamental to the structure of the memory that makes the whole thing prosthetic. Yes, because what you've inherited is prosthetic. Yeah. It is not only, in a sense, a congealed form of memory, but it's a sort of memorialization in this sort of cyclical sense that we're trying to evoke here. So that, again, the what passes through the who as a sort of aperture right there's no there's no substance there i think and maybe this is why he briefly brings in hegel and says listen subject is not substance right there's no egoic self there there because i was wondering why he brought hegel in to the conversation and he he brings him up another time for something else but mm. um i think he gives a pretty good account of how worldhood is constituted through instrumentality not on the basis of instrumentality, right? It's not just that there's this ontological relation between Squidward and his clarinet, but that Squidward's world is constituted through the use of his clarinet. It's a it's a world-making enterprise, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that that is crucial to Heidegger. So, so Heidegger also has this idea of worlding or world-building and that it's the ready at hand that are part of constituting our world. But I think that for Heidegger, this comes back to the kind of anthropocentric lens on all that. That for Heidegger, it's like these things build my world. And Stiegler's saying, yeah, they do, but you haven't thought through the the kind of the prosthetic memory that right, right. they they constitute to the building of uh, to the construction of being. It's not just that they kind of constitute a world, but that that time and being is impossible the who is impossible without the what or it's or it's not the distinction doesn't even hold right and it's it's that point it comes back to the idea that Heiger thinks on the basis of the instrument not through the instrument or on the basis of instrumentality um which i think in stiegler's estimation is i guess what he would call like a technology a knowledge of technics which is not again limited to man and his tools, but just something more fundamental about, about the nature of reality, frankly. Yeah. The structure of being even, I think, I mean, I think this is the point you made last time that, that there's a very deliberate techniques and time as a replacement of being and time. But Stiegler clearly cannot do any of his work without Heidegger already having done his, that, that feels more and more clear to me having got to the end. Um, and so I, I think that what you said is absolutely correct there, and that it's very specifically that Stiegler is saying it's technicity, which is the structure of being. So if part of Heidegger's project is to interrogate the fundamental ontology, not just the nature of beings, substance, essence, whatever, but what does it even mean to be, then Stiegler is saying that is a question of technics. Yeah, or there's really what other way would you have to talk about something like that? Right. It's only on the basis of techniques that you can talk about it. Right. I think what, what implications do you think this has for, I don't know, things that we might be concerned about ethics, ecology, and so on that other discourses also lend themselves to like, right. What's different. What's really different here in that sense. I I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so that that is where I first want to come back to Haraway, and I think the idea of the cyborg is really relevant. And she has developed that concept through into uh, into a much more sort of ecologically focused, um, staying with the troubles, making kin in the Cthulhu scene, which is her term for the epoch, which is obviously a time designation. So I, I would be really interested to read that work in the light of having read Stiegler to say to what extent is that concept of time and 
interspecies relation and the and her previous work on the construction of the human as a as a cyborg construction to what extent does that engage or not with the concept of technicity as a kind of prosthetic memory i think that'd be a really interesting question to explore yeah uh, there's yeah certainly resonances with Haraway and with Latour. I can't help but return to the question of so what, mm. um, and I know that sometimes that's besides the point or too much is made of that question. In reading something, we're not really fully aware of how we're being formed by it. As much as I try to you know get at an eye level with Stiegler and, and Haraway, personally, what I'm interested in is I don't know what else to, what other word to use. Like it's the the spiritual question. My ambitions are, I think, smaller these days. Or they're, they're more well-defined and they're more reasonable, <laughs> which is to say I'm interested in how can engaging with this kind of work change me. The, the bigger questions are interesting, but ultimately, largely beyond my abilities to affect. So I feel in some ways at the end of this book, like I did towards the beginning, I'm not sure what to do with it. I think it raises additional questions, additional correspondences to be drawn out. And I guess that's the, the benefit, right? He's sort of enriching this conversation that's been pushing against and trying to sort of dissolve or disentangle the question of anthropocentrism, which I think is at the root of a lot of problems. And he gives us additional ways to think about it, as well as how to think about time. Because I think this is one way of pushing against that boundary or breaking that kind of boundary down is on the basis of time and on a reconception of time. He begins and ends this book talking about time. And so I think that's something to stay with is the question of time, because I think we do need a radical reconfiguration of how we conceive of time that pushes beyond the only two models that we seem to have available to us, which are of linearity and circularity. Even when you combine those into, into a sort of spiral formation, I feel like I just feel dissatisfied with that. For me, I'm trying to think of a new image for time. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, um, it's, it's absolutely necessary to think that. I've been writing on that recently in, in relation to quantum theory. And uh, have you read anything by Carlo Rovelli? No, I never it's heard like the a, name. Uh, he's like a leading physicist on quantum gra- gravity, but writes these really simple, popular, I say simple, I mean, they're intense, but they're just so elegant. He's like a poet and a physicist. There's a book, I've got it here, The Order of Time. It's definitely worth reading, really short, but just mind-blowing, wonderful. Nice. Um, the, the, The main takeaway for me is that time can be thought as changing spatial relationship. It's a very Aristotelian notion, isn't it? Yeah, and the, the, I think the difference is that it's not quite a changing spatial relationship because actually both time and space are caught up in the behaviour of a gravitational field. Latour has this really interesting phrase about we make the time through the sorting of objects and that we could sort them differently. Uh, and so he uses that in his critique of modernity as a kind of fundamental rupture in time. So the idea of the modern is that there's a past, you know, a pre-modern, and then now we're modern. And that structure of constant rupture in time is even when we've said we've left modernity behind, we're really just still doing the modern thing because then we're like, well, that, that, that was the old thing and now we're in the new thing and there's a fundamental break. And he's saying, actually, it's that is a way of sorting objects by always sorting what was before and what is now. Um, whereas actually we could sort the objects differently. And I think there's something about that in what Stiegler is doing with time, which is this Heideggerian idea that the, that the past lays in front as an already there that, that is right before us as a path that we're kind of almost obliged to tread. And that, that that's a different way of sorting objects, I think. But if you read it through Stiegler, then it really is about objects because it's about the technicity, the tools that make that prosthetic memory that lays that past right in front of us. Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes me think of, you know, architecturally how we experience time in different settings. When you walk into, you know, a dive bar, you have a different conception of time than when you walk into, say, Notre Dame, Mm. right? 
and a different conception of time, not just based on spatial context, but also in terms of participatory context, right? It's the whole thing, you know, uh, time flies when you're having fun. When you enter that flow state, say you're a rock climber, you're on the face of a wall. It's not so much that the rock is ready to hand, it's, it's present at hand and you become present with the rock. Yeah, but I, I, well, it's interesting because the, the notion of present at hand is precisely a non-presence. And so I think this is the other thing for me that I've really benefited from Stiegler and just thinking about if we're going to approach the question spiritually, as you, yeah. were, as you were saying, I've really benefited from being pushed back to Heidegger's existential analytic and this idea of uprootedness, of thrownness into the world, to possibility, to a kind of radical indeterminacy, and yet the facticity of a being towards death, that actually, if you choose to, can force you to confront authentically the, the angst that drives so much of life, mm. that drives so much of staying within the lines of a tradition that provides an already there. Um, and the challenge of of not forgetting death, and in Stiegler, I think, of not forgetting prostaticity, uh, uh, my prostaticity, and indeed ours, because I think that part of the implication of that is that the is that the my the I does break down a bit, right? And and that the, uh, this idea that I'm always exceeding myself, if I was present and not exceeding myself, I would be dead. It's the kind of constant non-presence, the constant escape of me from myself, rather than just seeing that as a kind of purely existential, psychoanalytic kind of Mm. um, experience in the world. I think Stiegler sort of pushes us to ground it all more, Mm. um, but without being rooted because the core concept for Heidegger is being uprooted. So, so continually uprooted, but it's not, that doesn't mean that we're not physically constituted by all of the apparatus that is around us. That's a really interesting point. I think you're right. I think an understanding of Stiegler and a sort of appropriation of Stiegler into one's thinking and a way of experiencing the world, I think it can help one become better accommodated to the flux of becoming. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that one of the main, main characters of Dasein is anxiety. And I think that is in part because of, you know, just radical indeterminacy, there's no escaping that, but also because when you make that sort of slight reconfiguration to Heidegger to include or to emphasize rather the already there, as constitutive of oneself, I think that's very sort of liberatory, actually, in the sense that I I don't feel as, for lack of a better word, separate from the world that I inhabit. The fact that I'm constituted by the world just means that, well, it just means that I I would like my world to uh, be (laughs) a little bit better (laughs) because I'm like, now I'm like personally invested in it if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I I think it's also with that, it's not just personally invested with it, but constituted. I mean, there's maybe a whole other conversation, which is maybe is less about the kind of immediate relevance, which is to do with uh, Barad, as we've talked before about the idea of indeterminacy and how could you read Barad in relation to this. But one of the core directions that Barad goes is then with Judith Butler and this kind of performativity. And one of the things that I think Barad is trying to work through there, Butler's own working through of the relation between the material and the performance. And so the kind of caricature of Butler by her critics is, you know, Butler divorces all notions of the performance of gender from the body that performs it which uh, i don't uh, i don't think is accurate um so if you take a baradian extrapolation of butler's work that matter performs the extent to which being able to make a choice about something 
is open to a being who can choose or is foreclosed, which, you know, is like one of the great questions of the world, you know, the extent to which we have the agency to choose, right? In Heidegger, you get this sense that, yeah, here's all tradition handed down to me, but the authentic life means I could choose something completely different. Well, and yes, I, and and I think I think um, to to your point, and I think this is something that you you've talked about a little bit about, and I think you work on is the question of apparatus. Yeah, right? exactly. Because, because it's a particular configuration of the already there. Yeah, that makes possible a certain way of being in the world, a discourse, and so on. And and so, I mean, to me, that's. Very much a material endeavor, but also a spiritual practice. Yeah. And I think Stiegler forces Heidegger in that direction, because I think that you can kind of get away with Heidegger and saying that the material doesn't constitute the constraints on the choice. Mm. The choice to be authentic is unconstrained. Um, And I think that with Stiegler, if we understand our being to be prosthetically constituted, then those choices are constrained by certain apparatus. And um, Mm -hmm, I mm. think that has some quite complex and potentially difficult implications um, uh, to to thinking agency. Absolutely. I I made this post the other day. Uh, Let me see if I could just find, I'll just read it. I want to misquote myself. (laughs) (laughs) That would be awful. (laughs) That would be terrible. I mean, what, you know, um, Um, Yeah, so I have several working definitions of magic, but the one to which I most often return is that magical practice is the art and science of beautifying one's relations. There's enough in that one single proposition to keep anyone busy for a lifetime. I think that idea does relate to what we're talking about, because to be able to configure the apparatus is to be a master of one's relations and to have choice over the the total horizon of what's possible within those relations, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. It's a a fascinating idea. Yeah. Yeah. So the magician is in that sense, remarkable because they have this uh, capacity to configure the apparatus in a way that is not normally seen as possible. I think so. And that's why for me, questions of technology are not at all divorced from questions of magic. I mean, science is just magic's most successful effort. But then, you know, science forgets its metaphysical presuppositions on which it's grounded and which make it possible, reifies itself, becomes a circular discourse, and then you get, you know, scientism. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting the way in which, you know, the magician, certainly in the kind of modern Western imagination, is seen as an individual. Uh, and science really can no longer be thought that way if ever it could. Like it, yeah. I mean, the, 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 where, where is the agency in science? It's, I mean, this right. is where I, I find Latour's language really helpful. It's a distributed agency. Hmm. So that there's, and, and is it possible ever to really talk about agency that is not distributed? Well, distributed distributed agency sounds a lot like a process without. An actor, there's a deconstructive element uh, or resonance to that as well. Well, I think for Latour, that's why he goes with the concept of actor network theory, because he wants to say that there are multiple actors and that the agency is distributed across the network. So it's not that there's no actor, but there are multiple actors, none of which could, could, could claim the agency of whatever action we're talking about. What did uh, Ingold say about that when we talked to him? He was just like, I thought his response was really funny and really interesting. He's like, no, because the whole question of agency is like, you're asking the wrong question. It's like, you, you're putting the whole, you're doing the interrogation in reverse. You, you're looking at a, an effect that has been produced and then retroactively projecting that onto an agent through which that activity passed or something like that right yeah yeah i i remember listening back to that and then trying to think about it a bit more because i i still i i think that latour would say agency is not about causality i mean I, that that is what latour would say agency is not about causality uh his entire notion of agency is about 
uh, destroying the notion of causality. Well, um, is it? I mean, or how so? I'm curious about that because I'm not as familiar with Latour as you, but it sounds like, you know, even just from what we've just been saying is that causality as a consequence of agency is just s- simply distributed. Not that it's not that the idea of agency as related to causality is problematized in and of itself, right? My, my understanding of Latour is that his notion of agency is to do with inducing certain behaviors rather than causing them. So I think he's trying to take on the problem of a kind of what he would describe as like a a, a, a concatenation of causes, you know, that that the effect is no more than the cause. Right, sort of mechanistic, uh, sort of mechanism. Yeah, and so he wants right. to get away from causality in that sense to understand agency in terms of attraction and dependence, I, which I think plays with Barad. I mean, this is part of my argument that this plays interestingly with Barad because the apparatus is what kind of produces the performance of the uh, the measurement is what produces the performance of the phenomena, um, and that it, it's but it's not that it causes it to happen; it's that it induces it. Um, yeah, that becomes a kind of that that is a different way of approaching a fundamental ontology, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I think the image of the uh, the feeder, I think, for me, is really helpful. I think about the apparatus is a kind of feeder. There's a sort of established parameters, things that can happen within the space, but you can configure those wildly differently. Um, I don't know what else to say, man. Um <laughs> I'm sorry if I haven't been coherent today. Um, it, it's been great, Matt. It's always great. And I've really enjoyed reading this book with you. And I'm pretty much certain I would not have reached the end had we not done this. So I'm I'm very grateful for it. And I think it's um we've we've been navigating the real problem of reading something that's just incredibly difficult. And I feel like I, I will probably read it again. I think because I am going to need to engage with this in my PhD. So I've got the kind of extra motivation. But I think when I go back and read it again, I feel like, okay, I'm much more equipped to, oh, yeah. Yeah, to understand it. And um, yeah, it's just been really useful discussion because it, I feel like we're often raising things for each other that the other hasn't necessarily thought of or not articulated it in that way. And uh, I, I found it really, really valuable. No, I, I I agree. I definitely um, feel like we've we've helped each other through <laughs> through this text, and yeah, I would likely have given up, or just not given up, but just kind of abandoned. Yeah, it's just one of those you just sort of fade out. You think I'll get to that? Yeah, I, this is a problem I have. I have so many books that I yeah I start, and and you know, <laughs> to be honest, a lot of them I don't I don't feel bad about abandoning because a lot of the work is kind of laid laid out in the introduction <laughs> right okay you got you got the you got the shape of it and that'll do I, yeah sometimes i'm feel like okay i'm good i don't need your i don't need the exposition at this point but there are other times though that i sort of like you know bear down on something and then it 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 does pay off because there yeah. was you know it, it it sort of uh there was something else in it that i that i didn't expect you know but <laughs> i wouldn't mind doing this with, yeah. another, with another book i mean yeah I, i'd be well up for that it's, it's a good it's a good process for me i i just have to find ways to keep reading uh I, so many things in my life crowd it out so this is actually really very helpful for me so yeah yeah I mean, whether, I mean, we, whether we do volume two or whether we take on something completely different i think i'm okay yeah i've got a book <laughs> that you might be interested in um that i just found in like some footnotes somewhere um, but it's going to be crucial for me, uh, which is called Quantum Anthropologies. Sounds fun. Yeah, um, I've just, hang on, let me grab it because I've forgotten who it's by. So it's by uh, Vicky Kirby, who um, I hadn't come across before, but is sort of, seems to be a kind of key exponent of Burad and has developed her own sort of, you know, if you were to kind of put that as a new materialist school, she would be another key voice. So um, this is very highly rated. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Vicky Kirby, Life at yeah. Large. Life at Large. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So she's uh, she's professor in Australia, I think. 
well, if you're if you are officially proposing that, I'll uh, I'll pick it up. I'm officially proposing. I think it's a good one, and it's another one I got to get read. So, um, but yeah, it, it it feels very relevant to lots of things we talk about. So, okay, well, um, order placed. Nice one. <laughs> All right, man. This was fun. Yeah, um, thanks, man. Talk soon. Yeah, we'll just figure out a date and let me know when you got the book and we'll go again. All right, man. Have a good one. Yeah, have a good day, mate. Take care. Bye.